The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Friday edition of Squawk Box. U.S. equities turning green for the week as political risk on Capitol Hill eases as lawmakers extend the debt ceiling until early December. The China services sector bouncing back to expansion as mainland markets resume trade on a positive note after their extended Golden Week holiday. Elsewhere, Armin Laschet offers to quit as the leader of Germany's CDU after the party's worst ever election result, proposing leadership elections next week. The CDU continues to stand ready for the Jamaica coalition. We are already intensively working through the election results and we will also quickly tackle the reorganisation of the CDU in terms of personnel. I would be happy if this could be accomplished in this difficult phase for the party, that we make a fresh start with new personalities. And the OECD moves one step closer to striking a global tax deal after Ireland agrees to ditch its 12.5% rate in a move held by the Finance Minister of Ireland, Pascal Donoghue. I'm absolutely satisfied that our interests are better served within the agreement from my contact and from my negotiation with stakeholders in Europe, in the United States and beyond. And Samsung expects to post its best quarterly profit in three years, up almost 30% on a year ago, fueled by a rise in semiconductor prices. But the stock move muted this hour as uh, those numbers, well, maybe they'll fall just a little short of forecasts. Good morning, everybody. The uh, U.S. Senate then has voted to approve a bill that temporarily raises the debt ceiling to December the 3rd, pushing back the date for a potential default, which Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has warned would be catastrophic. Lawmakers voted along party lines to achieve the simple majority needed for the measure to extend the public borrowing limit by $480 billion. It now goes to the Democrat-controlled House of Representatives before being sent to the president. Good morning, Jeffrey. Yeah, mild bit of relief for the markets as well. I mean, look, this is another one of those weeks where earlier in the week we're having to categorise, to put a list of all the reasons why the market should be afraid. And by the end of the week, we're going, well, actually, the market's ignored the entire lot of it. Uh, and actually, for the week... For the week, we've actually got some substantial rises with the Dow up 1.3% for the week, the S&P up a percent, even the Nasdaq, which had a volatile old time, up 0.7 of a percent. Here you can see yesterday's moves, not quite as magnificent as they were in the session, if you are long the market, that is. Of course, there are many of you out there who take the opposite view, had a horrendous session at the end of it. Uh, 338 points to the good on the Dow as well. Um, the data remains pretty robust as well. We saw the uh, the jobless claims figure 
figures in the most recent set of numbers, 326,000, a very solid figure, one of the lowest levels we've seen for the last several weeks as well. But everybody is eyeing payrolls later today. And I think if the payrolls are just moderately good, it seems to me from what everyone I've been reading is that it's just a rubber stamp then uh, for the November taper announcement. Uh, if there are bad figures, maybe that will scupper plans somewhat. Let's have a look at the US treasuries. Um, one figure of note here for you. 1.59. So despite the fact that the markets lost their composure early in the week and have regained it, the yield on the 10-year note continues to rally. So I guess people really anticipating the taper uh, from November, which is only next month now. Goodness me, how can November be so near? Right, would you like to look at gas prices? Gas prices have been where most of the concern have been, of course, uh, in the last week. And as, as Karen was pointing out yesterday when she was standing at the wall, the problem isn't in US natural gas supply. The problem is elsewhere globally. Uh, this is the Dutch measure down 10.5% and the British measure over there down 10.2%. Have a look at Brent. Brent continued. It got down to a 78. Yes, really volatile session yesterday. You can't really see it from this chart. We got down to a 78 handle at one point yesterday on Brent. Yeah. 83 bucks. Where is the tipping point? When do our, our friends over at OPEC, OPEC Plus, suddenly turn around and say, mm, we've got to be a little bit careful here, a little bit careful, because we don't want to, was it, kill the golden goose that lays the eggs? Because at the moment, they're very happy with the situation in terms of pricing. But if you go too far on oil prices, every single time in history, there is a market and recession thereafter, when the market has gone too far in oil prices. Are we there at 83? I don't know. Maybe it's high. Maybe it's $100. Maybe it's $115. But the fact of the matter is, the market's got to be very careful on this one. Otherwise, you kill the demand, there's going to be a problem, isn't there? And OPEC knows that. They're very smart. Gentlemen, I'm afraid. There's no ladies, I don't think, in charge of some of the key ministries anymore, which is a shame. Right, uh, moving on. Opening calls for European markets. How do they look? Uh, Flattish. Good session yesterday for the European indices. They all put on 1.2 to 1.9%. The DAX had a, a roaring session to the upside, um, called down 10 points at the start of trading. Um, interesting piece of research from JP Morgan. Again, one of our earlier pieces of uh, woe and worry and concern early in the week. JP Morgan estimates that the Chinese property developer Evergrande has amassed billions, billions of dollars of off-balance sheet debt that could greatly add to its leverage ratios. The lender estimates... Um, that the, quote, disguised debt could ultimately make up 55% of its overall debt. Meanwhile, rival developer Fantasia has seen trading in onshore bonds halted due to abnormal fluctuations. What's abnormal fluctuations in a property company's offshore bonds these days? Anyway, or onshore, according to the Shanghai Stock Exchange. Let's take a look at the Asian indices. What have we got? We've got the Nikkei currently up. 477 points. The Hang Seng, mildly easier. Uh, the ASX up 0.8 of 1%. Uh, right. Chinese service, services activity returned to growth in September, according to the latest private sector Kaishin PMI data. Sam joins us with details as the Chinese markets reopen after a week's holiday. Hi, Sam. 
Hi there, Steve. Good morning to you. And as you clearly just pointed out, I mean, the mainland markets had plenty of catching up to do today as they came back from that long break for the Golden Week national holiday. We've had this power shortage worsening across the country. We've had Evergrande, as you just pointed out, but also we've had these uh, developments on the geopolitical uh, front. But of course, helping out sentiment today uh, was largely that positive data with the Taishin Services PMI jumping back into a positive level, level leaping out of contraction territory that we saw uh, in August, as we did see a resurgence in cases really taking a hit to things like consumption, travel uh, and accommodation. So that reading coming in at 53.4 compared to 46.7 uh, in August. And really no surprise because it was consistent with the official numbers that we got in the month of August, where we did see the service, sorry, September, where we did see the services sector doing a lot better than the manufacturing side of things. As we know, this power squeeze is weighing on those factories. Uh, of course, we did see, as I said, an uptick when it came to accommodation, travel and catering. But of course, the private survey uh, does look at the smaller firms in China, things like bars uh, and restaurants and predominantly in the coastal towns, which are far more vulnerable to these sorts of restrictions and social distancing measures than the manufacturing and the uh, bigger firms as well. Uh, But actually, the new business and employment in that breakdown of the sub-indexes actually bounced back into expansion territory. That's very good news, particularly on the job front, but it wasn't all rosy because we also did see new export orders continuing to shrink again to the lowest level uh, in seven months. Those input costs also rose for the 15th month in a row and that was down to those uh, higher labour costs again, transportation and also these high raw material costs. So we do know that these inflationary pressures continue to weigh on the services sector as well but authorities did put this expansion in services sector activity down to them managing to get uh, the virus uh, under control particularly in Jiangsu province, which is in the east of China. So it is testament perhaps to those very strict measures that we saw authorities putting in place to really keep a lid on things as they did manage to uh, certainly allow those uh, restrictions to ease. And that really helped things out ahead of the big holiday because we also got some uh, pretty good holiday spending figures as well today. We did see an uptick uh, in consumption during uh, the last seven days. That has helped sentiment out on the mainland uh, as well. We saw duty-free shopping jumping some uh, 87%. That's certainly good news for the consumption story as well in China, which we know, Jeff, of course, has largely been lagging this economic recovery so far. Terrific, Sam. Thank you so much for that. Investors' attention set to turn to non-farm payrolls later today. Economists polled by Reuters are looking for the world's largest economy to have created 500,000 new jobs in September, even as worker shortages pose a risk to job growth. Uh, Ludovic uh, Subran joins us, chief economist at Allianz. Ludovic, sometimes these, uh, these numbers come and go and they seem to have little market impact. How important do you think today's data point is going to be? I mean, today's data point is particularly interesting because we're going to see if 2.5 million American teachers went back to school or not. And so that's particularly important because remember, one of the glass ceiling of the job situation in the U.S. are those 5 million Americans that are saying that they're not going back to work because they're caring for their children. So, And, and among those, you have a lot of teachers. So we expect a slightly lower uh, jobs report. We expect it in the tune of 350,000, looking at the latest numbers that came out. Uh, but this is important because, as you know, this is part of the whole normalization um, uh, path uh, for, for the Fed. So, um, yeah, it's quite an important uh, back to school jobs report. And so everybody's going to be looking at it.
significant um, is the hourly earnings number going to be at, at this point? Uh, just overnight, I think we learned that UK starting pay has jumped the most on record. We are seeing other indications of inflation in the US economy. Will this um, hourly earnings number be a surprise potentially to the upside? You know, the, the big question are wages in the US, right? So right now, as long as we are at 3.5, between 3.5 and 4.5% growth for wages, I think we don't see a wage price uh, spiral. This is really what central banks are afraid and, and that could actually fuel uh, inflation. So the jobs report is important. More importantly, are the, the hour, average hourly earnings, right? What, what you mentioned. And we expect them to continue to be below or around 4%. Um, and they are important indeed because they will uh, give a bit uh, of, of an idea whether we should be concerned about a regime switch of inflation in the U.S., right? The, the U.S. inflation is above 4%, but, and we all expect, or at least I'm in team transitory, so I expect it to go down by the end of 22. But if we see this uh, wage-setting, price-setting spiral, then this is a different ballgame. Then the Fed cannot claim that they have to see through uh, the energy-led uh, inflation. So, so this is quite important, actually. But this is these are very volatile numbers, you mentioned that. So it's going to be really... a over the next, uh, I would say, quarters that we will see whether this is important. Right now, overheating is there, but it's not something that will determine a Fed action just now. Ludovic, um, there's sleight of hand on both sides of the debate about whether it's permanent inflation or transient as well. And I noticed a little sleight of hand from you there as well. You've given yourself to the end of 2022 to see whether it's transient or not. This is the crisis that started in early 2020 that we're coming out of here. So you've given yourself a nice long time frame, you chaps in the transient debate, haven't you? Yeah, I think it's funny that you say that because, you know, even if inflation is a two-year issue, it's still having a massive effect on those whose margins and purchasing power cannot absorb uh, the effect, right? So we're going to be looking at profitability shock for a series of sectors. We're going to be looking at an income shock for a series of people. So it's not because the economists are debating whether it's two years or more that it matters. Inflation is an issue, um, and, and, th and therefore it requires some, some specific action. But I don't think, for example, central banks can solve uh, zero COVID policy in Asia or the supply or logistic shock in the, in the ports, right? The, the big question on the transient versus, uh, versus uh, stagflation debate, for me, is whether we have a real issue, which is a regime switch, whether it's more than supply, because this requires a very different set of actions. Right now, you need more competition, price transparency. You need to be careful about how you handle those logistics bottlenecks. This is, this is what we see. If we start to see a wage-setting, price-setting loop, then, you know, central banks have to do something because then they will be in uncharted territories and they, you know, run the risk of losing the anchoring of expectations. So for me, this is what the real debate is. But two years of inflation is an issue for some people, for some companies, and we need to make sure that they are offset in a way, or at least that we know that it's going to create um, issues on, on a series of economic factors, yeah. OK, in terms of the other fact, we've all become obsessed, certainly us uh, financial market journalists have become obsessed with inflation. What's the other bit of the equation we're all missing, Ludovic? Um, I mean, two other bits that are important for me. One is there is no monetary inflation. When you look at the velocity of money, it's actually declining still. 
So, you know, there is no risk, I would say, that what we see from the injection of liquidity from helicopter money in the U.S. is creating also a spiral that is a bit out of control. So that's good news uh, because we've seen that in emerging markets uh, where it, it's not happening. And we see inflation being quite an issue, in, you know, from Hungary to Turkey to Argentina to other countries. Right? And the second issue is, you know, to, to save the world from recession and bankruptcies and unemployment, uh, policymakers decided to go bold, right? And so they created a bit of debt and inflation. The big, uh, the reason why everybody is so focused on 2022 or 2023, is not really just kicking the can down the road. It's also because we're going to see if we still get some growth, if we still get some productivity, if we still, uh, you know, manage to avoid because of, you know, the state of uh, staying there welcome in the, in the private affairs, right? If we're avoiding a zombification of the economy. And so for me, these are the two other things on top of the wage price spiral that we need to continue to have a look at to determine whether this is a bigger problem than just a two-year, you know, uh, dent, I would say, on, on the margins of, of the people and companies that are affected by inflation because they don't have pricing power, because their income is low and so forth. So those two issues are also as important, I would say, as watching, you know, like, like milk on the fire, as we say in French, uh, wage growth in the US, in the UK, and certainly in the Eurozone. Ludovic, um, Armin Laschet looks like he's going to step aside at the CDU, or at least he's talked about stepping aside potentially, if he's seen as a, a problem for the Conservatives, maybe that leads us down a path where we could be talking about a Jamaica coalition with uh, Laschet uh, gone, uh, but somebody else as Chancellor. As you look at the negotiations at the moment, how concerned or otherwise are you about what this means for the German debt break, fiscal spending in the Eurozone, the prospect of a renegotiation of the Growth and Stability Pact? Well, you know, the, the current coalition talks that are the most advanced are the so-called Ampel coalition, right? The traffic lights. So it's the socialists, the Green and the Liberals, right? And they have one agreement, which is we keep the debt break. It's constitutional. Actually, the Green would like to go for a debate on the debt break, the 0.35% of debt to, to GDP, which is in the constitution, right? Um, I don't think it will happen, but the, the black zero um, is actually something that should be uh, lifted should this traffic light coalition come to a, a fruition, right? So so this is a bit what the, the debate is currently in Germany is to see whether the, the socialists, the SPD the, and the liberals and the green agree on uh, using the room to maneuver that Germany has, which is between 20 and 25 billion a year of investment while generating, I would say, zero public deficit, right? Um, and this is important uh, because these 20 to 25 billion, they matter for the energy transition. They matter for some of the issues that Germany is facing on digital and, and making sure they're ready for, I would say, what's coming at us. Uh, so, so this is the discussion. On, on Laschet and the CDU, it's a much more complicated issue because, you know, when you run um, the, the, for, for, for election, when you run a party, you cannot really go while the coalition talks are, are, are in a sense happening. So I, I would see that as, a, as, a, as an issue. I think Laschet you know, talked about uh, leaving the, the leadership of the CDU because of the, the bad results, but I wouldn't throw the, the baby with the bathwater just yet. And again, you know, we, we warned of that. But in Germany, it's really two, pro, two, two, two steps, right? So we are in coalition talks till 2022. Sorry, I'm bringing 2022 again. So it's going to be quite long. Um, so, so let's see. He's just making an act of contrition. He's just saying, look, you know, I didn't really do what I was supposed to do. Right now, the talks are more on the other side. Let's see how this evolves because I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure yet about what's going to happen. And I still think the CDU could actually be in the coalition.
All right. Good to see you, Ludwig. Thanks so much for joining us. Ludwig uh, Subran, Chief Economist at Allianz. Um, let me just point out to you, we have the uh, Japanese uh, Prime Minister speaking at this point, um, uh, Mr. Kashida. Uh, he is delivering his first policy speech to Parliament, uh, basically showing his commitment to some of the issues ranging from the pandemic to the economy to security. Uh, and obviously, here's an attempt, an early uh, bit of hustings to try and rally voter support ahead of the imminent elections there. So just to let you know that he's on his feet and if there's anything material, uh, we will uh, bring it up. Do we have a a figure for Japanese debt to GDP these days? The only reason I mention it is Uh because he says uh, to carry out spending without hesitation, (laughs) to carry out fiscal spending without hesitation to respond to the crisis, to achieve the goal of overcoming deflation. I, I mean... Did they, do they have to write new comments every time there's a new prime minister or to just to roll out what the previous chap said? Well, I, I mean, look, this is a window before the next election. So I'd be very surprised if we heard him set out a policy platform that was significantly different from his LDP predecessor. Don't you think, though, when you look at Japan, you just see the future and you look at Japan, you think, you know, we worry about 90 percent debt to GDP, you know, in the old Rogoff and Reinhardt way in the West. That was the level, blown that one out of the water. 100% debt to GDP. Well, my conversation with Gentle only a couple of weeks ago saying, now we've got to accept that it's 100% now. So, you know, we've got to reinterpret the growth and stability pact. Then you look at Italy, you know, 130-odd, whatever, and then Greece, 180-odd. The sky's the limit, isn't it? I mean, those of us who actually worry about what we spend and on, on a personal basis or, or look at corporations who have got too big a debt to GDP, you look at Japan and say... 250% debt to GDP. What the J? I mean, the JGBs must be a massive yield on the back of that, aren't they? Uh, what are the J, what's the JGB yield these days? Do you, do you, do you get into positive territory? The, um, but, but as we've discussed, I mean, the Japanese have been able to do it because of the large domestic savings pool that they have in the postal savings account. So in a sense, that has acted as a counterweight to the government's extended borrowing. And that's something that we don't necessarily have in other Western economies. Tick. What am I ticking? You could be here a long time ticking, it, though, I think. I'm ticking the happens. demographic time bomb, <laughs> which which your old mate Kuroda said to me about yeah. six years ago. He said, well, if we haven't solved it by the end of the decade, we yes. may well have a problem. That was last decade. Yes. Uh, and we'll still be. 0.08 was the answer to my uh, question. Ten-year paper in Japan with 250% debt to GDP and a brilliant load of postal savings is 0.08%. Uh, uh, There's uh, the future, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and we're still going to be sat around this desk talking about this in ten years' time. What are we saying? Wondering... Japanification or Japanization? J- Japanification. Right. Okay. I would say. Anyway, uh, the we are turning Japanese. Are we? You know, I think so. You really think so? I really think so. The CDU's search for a new leader begins as Armin Laschet offers to step down following the party's worst ever election result. Did you hear about the podcast? Go on. Been nominated for a Pulitzer. Has it really? No, it hasn't. (laughs) But it's pretty good. Uh, From squeeze stockpiles in Europe to deep debt burdens in China, you can have uh, your, wait, stay up to date uh, on all the latest developments in the global economy by subscribing to the not... Uh, um, going for a put it's a squat box podcast it's pretty good though 
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. The defeated chancellor candidate for Germany's Christian Democrats, Armin Laschet, has offered to step down as leader as the party licks its wounds from its worst ever election result. Speaking from Berlin, Laschet gave his reasons. It's not about the person Armin Laschet. It's about the project for the country. And therefore, if one wants to come to different solutions, this is possible. The Great Jamaica Project will not fail because of personnel. It will not fail because of individuals. It's a great task that we're facing. And this signal has already been conveyed in this week's talks. It's also been conveyed in the union's internal circle. And I've reported on this to the parliamentary group today. I would be happy if this could be accomplished in this difficult phase for the party, that we make a fresh start with new personalities. The winners of last month's German federal election, the Social Democrats, kicked off three-way negotiations on Thursday, seeking to forge the so-called traffic light coalition with the Greens and the Free Democrats. Uh, let's catch up with Arnie Jung-Johan, then political scientist at the Green Academy of the Heinrich Boll Foundation. Arnie, good to see you once again here. Let me ask you, what do you think is the most likely outcome after these uh, negotiations are concluded. Very interesting in your notes, you talk about a high probability of a grand coalition again, a two-party arrangement at the national level. Where do you think the talks then likely fall down? Good morning from Stuttgart again. Glad to be back here. Well, we are seeing that the the exploratory talks for the traffic light coalition continue. And uh, at this point of time, it, looked like, it looks like the most probable coalition outcome that we will see. Uh, I would still consider a coalition between the Social Democrats and the Conservatives. That's a fallback option if these uh, traffic light coalition talks uh, um, you know, may falter, which we don't know at this point. We had a very novel situation here in Germany, at, uh, for, for German politics at least, um, given that there has never been such a coalition before. Uh, on the national level. And we are seeing a, a situation where the two smaller parties, the Greens and the Liberals, are, uh, are picking up space, uh, pace and um, acting actually quite confident. Together they have more votes than the Social Democrats. So it's quite a, it's a, it's a dynamic um, uh, coalition negotiations. Um, and all parties are somewhat acting very carefully because they know if they enter such a coalition, um, they will have to demonstrate to all of their voters uh, to, to, to stay in line of credibility because the differences between the parties are quite big. Ani, how does the announcement uh, we heard yesterday from Armin Laschet change your thinking about the possibility of a Jamaica coalition? Would that be more acceptable, do you think, to the Greens and the FDP if Armin Laschet was replaced? I think his announcement actually made the Jamaica coalition close to impossible. And the reason for that is uh, a conservative fight within the party. Uh, and af after Laschet's announcement, um, Markus Söder from the Bavarian sister party actually pulled out the knife 
and put the put it in the back of the Jamaica coalition. So Bavaria's conservatives do not have an interest of a Jamaica coalition. I think Markus Söder is eyeing uh, his own views on the on the regional elections in 2022, uh, which he hopes to to get a victory from against a national traffic light coalition. And then he could become the you know the, the most prominent candidate and likely chancellor of a new government of the conservatives on the national level. So the the, the half-hearted departure of Armin Laschet uh, is not opening uh, the prospects for Jamaica, but just actually making it more difficult. Arnie, in terms of policies, everybody looks to Germany, even the Brits who aren't in the EU anymore, uh, look to Germany for leadership on a continental basis. Well, and goodness knows we need leadership at the moment, given the energy crisis and the whole host of other issues that need sorting as well. What are the key policies you think are going to emerge strongly, though, out of Germany rather than some muddled policy at the end of this? My worry is that Germany will not be able to give us strong, forward-looking policies on energy, on uh, uh, transformation out of COVID, on COVID bonds, all these kind of things. What are the policies you think that will come out of this? Well, at this point of time, if, if we're most likely heading towards a traffic light coalition, um, you know, if this was if this was Star Trek, then I would call the traffic light coalition the spaceship Voyager because it would be a new start. Uh, it's a coalition that focuses on the most urgent problems, and that domestically in Germany is is most likely digitization tackling the climate crisis, and then creating more social justice. So these are the main themes of these likely three partners that we'll, we will see a lot of emphasis on. However, I would also expect from such a constellation that there would be a stronger effort again for, for a stronger European integration. Um, just one on the current crisis, and everybody's looking at German policy on Nord Stream 2 and German policy towards Russia. It is complicated, to say the least. We know it's complicated. We've all looked at the post-war history of, of the two enormous nations as well. Do you think Frau Merkel has got it right in her relationship with Russia? And is it going to change going forward? If so, Because there are a lot of people saying, hang on a second, Nord Stream 2 is just going to make Germany and Europe more under the under the thumb uh, of an authoritarian Russia. Yes, uh, I totally agree, and, and many people here agree, and that is one point of dissent in this likely new coalition, with the Social Democrats being on track on the let's say on the current government path uh, of accepting Nord Stream two or of enabling it and supporting it, uh, while the Greens are much more skeptical about this, the Liberal Party as well a bit. Um, and uh, I would consider it most likely that the Greens could end up heading the foreign office in Germany. So it's hard to predict uh, how this will play out. It's an issue of contention. Um, but I think in general, what we will see in combination with the energy transition moving forward and with the Greens, uh, you know, putting a strong emphasis on tackling the climate crisis, we will see a stronger push in Germany for going renewables all the way. Um, sometime between 2030 and 2035, hopefully for the for the power sector, uh, and this will give also some credibility to wean off uh, more fossil fuels, including Russian gas. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to CNBC.com or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.